This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tonight, straight from the source, Congressman George Santos is history and making history after being evicted from Congress in disgrace. Now the fight for his crucial seat in a narrowly divided house. Plus, airstrikes resuming in Gaza, widening to some targets in the south where thousands of civilians were told to relocate. Uh, and with more than 130 hostages still in captivity, will a negotiator strike a deal for another pause? And breaking news in the federal election interference case, another loss for Donald Trump. Here are the judges blistering new ruling. I'm Jim Acosta, and this is The Source. Good evening, everybody. Caitlin is off tonight. I'm Jim Acosta. We're going to bring you the very latest from Israel resuming airstrikes in Gaza tonight as its Iron Dome intercepted rockets today. Still no deal yet for another fighting pause. But first, to our other major story, the congressman who infamously lied his way into the U.S. House is now out. George Santos expelled with an overwhelming number of bipartisan votes, 311 to 114, after committing an overwhelming amount of ethics violations, not to mention also facing 23 federal fraud and conspiracy charges. Long a distraction up on Capitol Hill. No sign of the New York Republican there anymore. Literally, Santos's sign has been taken down outside of his office. The lock is now changed on his door. He's now a member of a dubiously elite club of six to get a House eviction. The first time since the Civil War, someone was ousted without a criminal conviction. An alleged con man, but not a convict yet. His exit shrinks an already thin Republican majority and sets off a scramble for his crucial seat ahead of a high-stakes special election early next year. New York Governor Kathy Hochul now has 10 days to schedule it. Disgraced politician, punchline, historical footnote. While we're at it, fraud, accused criminal, suspected con man. The possible descriptions go on and on, almost as long as the list of lies told by George Santos. But the story of a man who has compared himself to everyone from Rosa Parks to Mary Magdalene, is far from over. The original Star Wars was in movie theaters longer than George Santos was in office. But the farce was strong with Santos. It was December of last year when the New York Times raised questions about his resume, but a local newspaper called The North Shore Leader was sounding the alarm months before, in part because even among his fellow Republicans, there were questions as basic as his name. Another congressional nominee, um, George Santos. George, who we know is a friend, as, and he's known as Anthony the Boulder to me. So I don't know where George Santos came into the thing, but that's what it says here. What followed was a barrage of bloviating BS, a flowchart of falsehoods from his education, the prestigious prep school with no record of him, to the fictitious all-star volleyball career at a college he never attended. Told me, I remember specifically, I'm into sports a little bit, that he was a star on the Baruch volleyball team and that they won the league championship. There were tall tales about being a mover and shaker on Wall Street with jobs at Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. That never happened. 
Then came the brazen and heartless attempts to cloak himself in some of the world's most horrific moments. Lies about being the descendant of Holocaust survivors that went along with claims he was Jewish. About having lost employees in the Pulse nightclub shooting and multiple shifting claims of some connection to the attacks on 9-11. It's astonishing his past did not catch up with him sooner. When there were active investigations for check fraud in Brazil, multiple court dates for failing to pay rent, and his role in what the SEC called a Ponzi scheme. And then there are the accusations of funneling charity money into his own pocket, even funds meant for a disabled veteran's dog. Woof. But it seemed shamelessness was his superpower on display time and again when he was confronted with his lies. I've lived an honest life. I've never been uh, accused, sued of, of any bad doing. Oh my God, George Santos stole money. George Santos bought designer clothes. That's what I buy. I just discovered what OnlyFans was about three weeks ago when it was bought up in a discussion in my office. Santos launched a thousand late night jokes, but lost in the jokes about appearing on Hannah Montana or producing one of the most notorious flops in Broadway history, the failed Spider-Man musical, What a Tangled Wed We Weave. Uh, there are also the people of Long Island, uh, more than 700,000 people in New York's third district. Uh, Santos was paid to represent in Congress. I don't feel that I can trust him to represent myself, uh, my interests, or, or the third district. He lied to everybody. I think we deserve better. George Santos? Uh. There were the messy interviews, even tantrums in the halls of Congress at one point with a baby in his arms. Santos leaves the House facing multiple federal indictments. The stack of charges includes unemployment insurance fraud, lying to Congress, falsifying campaign fundraising reports, and scamming the very people he was elected to serve. Because this is George Santos, who somehow managed to turn a criminal indictment into a salacious read as prosecutors uh, detailed a lifestyle of lavish trips, shopping sprees, and online porn. But in the end, he did accomplish one thing. He brought Democrats and Republicans together for one brief shining moment up on Capitol Hill. That's right, a rare moment of bipartisan agreement that it was time for Santos to go. I'm joined now by former senior advisor to Mitch McConnell, Scott Jennings, and former senior advisor to President Obama, David Axelrod. Uh, gentlemen, thanks very much. Uh, pardon the long windup there, but uh, it's a long <laughs> saga for George Santos. I mean, I, I think we probably left some things out there. Uh, Scott, what's the significance now of George Santos now being a former congressman? He can't lie about that. Yeah, it was a righteous vote, and uh, I'm glad they went ahead and did it. I was a little puzzled by some of the Republicans who in recent days made him a bit of a cause celeb. And it seems to me that the leadership of the House Republicans today, this morning, after sort of being quiet about this to some degree, misread their own conference. I know a few more Republicans than not uh, voted to keep Santos, but you could tell a lot of Republicans did not want to be associated with him. They were alarmed by the ethics report. And they were standing by the Republicans on the Ethics Committee and also the Republicans in New York who were desperate to tell the leadership, hey, we got to get rid of this guy. I was really puzzled by their votes. But I suppose in this case, all's well that ends well. Santos is out. He deserves to be out. And this was, if anything, a victory for the institution, for the institutional integrity of the Ethics Committee process, and hopefully cleansing the Republican brand of uh, Santos's unique uh, problems, which had been an embarrassment to the entire party. And David, as a, as a Democratic strategist, do you kind of wish he wasn't leaving? Well, he, he would have been DOA in, a, uh, in any kind of re-election campaign 
you know, he, he's facing these charges, as you've mentioned, and he's really victimized the people uh, of his district uh, in a way that I don't think he, he would ever be uh, forgiven for. I think the only uh, the only term that George Santos will serve in a federal uh, building in the future will probably be in a prison, not in the U.S. Congress. But, uh, you know, I agree with Scott on uh, everything that he said, including I was baffled as well as to why the three Republican leaders voted to save Santos. You know, the Republicans had a choice, uh, and it was a tough choice, which was give up a precious vote in a house that is almost evenly divided and that has been hard to uh, manage as it is, uh, or have a guy on your team who was so radioactive that he threatened to cost them the house uh, in the next election. You know, six of the swing district battles that they have to defend in uh, 2024 to hang on to the House are in the state of New York, three of them on Long Island. And that's why those New York legislators were so vehement about getting rid of Santos, who was, of yeah. course, big news in their media markets. Yeah, Scott, I mean, the new speaker, Mike uh, Johnson, did not uh, vote ultimately to uh, kick out George Santos. The, the leadership was sort of standing by him. What was going on there, do you think? Well, I mean, look, it, you know, one, one of it is just pure politics. As David mentioned, um, it's a narrow majority for the Republicans. And they were thinking about, well, when this seat is vacant, we'll have an even narrow majority and there's going to be a special election and we may not win this seat back. This is one of those districts that was represented by a Republican that Joe Biden won. So there's no guarantee of Republicans coming back. So you might look at it through the lens of just math, and they don't want it to be any harder than it already is to govern this un, uh, unruly House Republican majority. I happen to also think that uh, this became a bit of a cause celeb for the Freedom Caucus guys, and you saw a lot of those people vote uh, to preserve Santos. And I wonder right. if the leadership was trying to you know, signal something to them, but at what cost? Because you could see in the votes totals you know, the, the so-called normies in the House Republican conference clearly uh, did not want to be associated with Santos anymore. And, and this idea of undercutting the members of the Ethics Committee. I mean, remember, Ethics Committee is a bipartisan deal. It's evenly split. And as soon as they finished their report, the Republican chair could not wait to get to the floor to file a motion to expel this guy to vote against him and to vote against the people you put on that committee to do the work that they did really cut the legs out from underneath. So I'm glad the ethics committee ultimately prevailed here, but, but I, I'm sure that ruffled some feathers. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, I'd say uh, there are a couple of things I want, a couple of things I want to say about this. One is uh, I absolutely believe the house did the right thing today, but you know, as with everything else we've seen, you, you worry about uh, this is a norm that has now been set aside because generally uh, members have to wait for conviction before they're expelled from the House. He was so flagrant in his abuses that he invited this. And the Ethics Committee report was so uh, was so uh, uh, outrageous uh, in, in the scope of the charges against him that he, he had to go. But I hope it doesn't become another one of those things where uh, this becomes weaponized and uh, used as a kind of partisan weapon uh, in the future. And that's always a fear in this political environment. And the second thing really quick is uh, this was a failure on the part of Democrats as well. You know, part of that ethics committee report was a 137 page self-research document that his campaign produced that surfaced a lot of these scandals that 
uh, took place before he uh, ever was elected. And somehow uh, the Democrats did not uh, make sure that that uh, information was known. Perhaps they didn't do the research. And also this was a bit of a media failure because there was a local newspaper there working on this story or some right. aspects of it, and it just never caught up. Uh, yeah. It just never caught on because it wasn't thought to be important enough. So there were failures all around on this uh, on this one. Yeah, I mean, the, the story was just unfolding at that point. Uh, no question about it. And, and, and Scott, um, here's what uh, Democratic Senator John Fetterman said on The View today. I, I thought this was interesting. Let's listen to this. We have a colleague in the Senate that actually did much more sinister and, and serious kinds of things. Uh, Senator Menendez, uh, he needs to go. Um, and if you are going to expel Santos, how can you allow to somebody like Menendez to remain in the Senate? Uh, Scott, I mean, I, I suppose people will give credit to Senator Fetterman there for, for going after uh, Bob Menendez and, and calling him for uh, removal as well. But is there something to be said for waiting until the legal process plays out? Uh, are we going to enter an era here where allegations are enough for members of Congress to be expelled? Well, in the case of Santos, um, the report, as David said, was so egregious. I mean, what they found and uncovered was so bad that uh, the members of the Ethics Committee felt like, we can't wait. I mean, this guy is really uh, beyond the pale. And so I think if you're going to have an ethics process, you know, you've got to let them make recommendations. That's what you do with any other committee. I mean, every other committee makes recommendations to their chamber and you tend to go with the experts on it. That's what the ethics committee is for. I think Fetterman is right on this. I, every time I hear John Fetterman lately, I find myself agreeing with him, which is a shocking <laughs> state of affairs for me. I was not a fan of his candidacy, but he's right on Israel. He's right on Menendez. He's right on this uh, Santos situation. So he's making a lot of sense. And I just think as a common Pencil sense matter, Pennsylvania look at what Menendez is accused of. Pennsylvania Democrats save this yeah. tape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's not going to help you in an election in Pennsylvania, I can assure you, David. I, I, <laughs> but I just think that what Menendez is accused of, he's right. I mean, if it's true, and if you had an ethics committee look at it and say, yeah, it looks like he's doing things with a foreign country that jeopardizes yeah. the national security, how could you wait? How could you wait for a One thing case? that, listen, I, I hold no brief for Menendez uh, and uh, these charges are egregious, but you know, he was indicted before and he was acquitted. Uh, so, um, you know, these, uh, this is, it, it's a little bit different because, uh, you know, uh, Santos was a serial liar and that was proven and there was no dispute about the trail of lies that he told. Uh, this needs to be adjudicated. Menendez denies it. Uh, but listen, uh, I, I think that if they're proven uh, yeah. that he should go, and I don't think he should be privy to uh, uh, classified information uh, when he's accused of trading on it for his own personal profit. Yeah. I think we know where uh, George Santos is headed next, and that is his own biopic or a series of some sort on a streaming service like Netflix or Max. I, I have to assume that's the next step. Uh, infamy always leads to one of those types of deals, it seems, these days. Uh, David Axelrod, Scott Jennings, thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. Coming Thank up you. next, breaking news. A federal judge not only denies Donald Trump's motion to get his January 6th trial thrown out, she issued a blistering takedown of his basis for it, saying he doesn't have the 
divine right of kings. Plus, an American icon is gone. We look back at the life and remarkable legacy of the first female Supreme Court Justice, Sandra Day O'Connor. She passed away earlier today at the age of 93. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We're back now with breaking news tonight. U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin handing down a decisive blow to Donald Trump and his legal team, rejecting their attempts to dismiss charges in the January 6th uh, case here in Washington, D.C. Joining me now to talk about this, senior national security reporter uh, Zachary Cohen. Zachary, what do we know? Yeah, Jim, this is really a forceful rebuke of Trump's argument that he should have absolute immunity for really any crimes he may have committed while in office. And that includes what he said and did after the 2020 election. And the judge in this case, Judge Chutkin, really making clear that she does not agree with what Trump's lawyers are arguing in this case. I want to take you through a couple passages here just to highlight them. The first one compares Trump to a um, divine king, says four years as commander in chief do not bestow on him the divine right of kings to evade criminal accountability. She goes on to say whatever immunities a sitting president may enjoy, the United States is only one chief executive at a time, and that position does not confer a lifelong get-out-of-jail-free pass. So this is an issue, presidential protections, that's going to have to be sorted out by an appeals court before Trump can go to trial. Obviously, this case is scheduled to go to trial in March. But, you know, the judge in this case making clear that she has no issues unless a federal appeals court steps in and, um, you know, takes a different side. We're going to have to see how quickly the appeals court can take up this issue, but certainly a major blow to Trump's legal um, you know, strategy in this federal election subversion case. Absolutely. And in a blistering way as well. All right, Zach Cohen, thank you very much. Joining me now to talk about this, former counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for National Security, uh, Kerry Cordero, and former U.S. Attorney Michael Moore. Uh, Kerry, what do you make of this ruling? And 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 the judge, uh, Judge Chutkin, I mean, really, you know, it's almost as though I feel like when I read what she has to say in, in a lot of these cases, it almost sounds like she is talking directly to the former president. Well, you do she, not have the divine right of kings and so on. <laughs> she is very clear. She is yeah. clear on that point. And she is clear on the point that to the extent that the former president's team makes arguments about what kinds of cases can be brought against a president, she consistently says, but he is not president anymore. He is not the president. And so it is a different situation when you have someone who is making these claims, trying to use the cloak of the presidency and executive authority when that simply isn't his position anymore. That being said, there are unique aspects of these cases that are uh, brought against him. And so he does have unique challenges because the conduct that's alleged was while he was president. And now he is also a candidate for future office. So that's why sometimes these First Amendment claims get more attention. Yeah, Michael, I mean, a lot of this gets wrapped up in, well, I I was president when this happened. Now I'm running for president while it's happening. You know, I I need to be granted all of these, uh, you know, favors and special privileges because all of these things happened while I was either president or running for president. Uh, what do you make of what the judge is saying tonight? Well, I'm glad to be with you both. I, I mean, she she stung him pretty good. 
uh, in the order. There's, there's no question about it. I mean, she went to great lengths to talk about uh, whether or not a president or a former president should have immunity. I do think it was interesting to me. There was a little bit of lack in talking about the fact that this happened while he was president. Uh, she refers to him repeatedly as the former president. I doesn't enjoy this. You put up the quote about, well, we have you know, only one president at a time. Nobody questions that. The, the issue is the conduct that occurred at the time that he was the sitting president of the United States. I mean, I, I, I do think it's a, it's a blow to the Trump camp. Uh, I also don't think that they were naive enough to think that this was going to get settled, you know, in the first inning of the game. And that's kind of where we are. Uh, this will have to make its way up to an, an appellate court. And ultimately, she even recognized at the end of her order, she recognizes that these are issues of first impression. Uh, and I'm not trying to be overbroad. And so, uh, you know, we're going to hear uh, from uh, nine folks sitting up there in a marble building uh, at some point uh, about what they think uh, of, of the case. Yeah. And, and Carrie, what is your sense of it. Do you think this might delay things? Because if it goes up uh, through the appellate process, uh, we, and we know the, the, tr the Trump playbook is delay, 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 uh, could this have a, an effect on the start date for this trial? It could potentially. I mean, the, ju the judge in this case has indicated she wants to move the case along in a measured way, and she thinks it's in the interest of justice and the public interest to move the case along promptly, not too soon that is unfair to the defendant, but in a way that uh, takes in account the fact, the realities um, of the environment and the fact that there is an election out there. Um, I think it could delay. I think that also is the point. Um, so many of these claims that are made, I mean, she knocked down claims that his team made on uh, the impeachment, judgment clause, First Amendment claims, claims of absolute immunity, double jeopardy, due process. I mean, they threw everything yeah. in there, um, I think in part to preserve any potential issue on appeal so that they have lots of opportunities to be able to write those briefs that potentially would go to the Supreme Court. Yeah, Michael, I mean, it sounds like this judge is determined to get this case started on time and she wants to get these issues resolved before it gets going. I think that's right. I mean, she she is clearly one who thinks that there's a public interest in moving the case forward. And, and I you know I agree the public interest has a right in that. I think, though, we also ought to have we ought to step back a little bit and think about the public's interest in protecting the norms and the institutions that we have. And, you know, what we don't want to do at the end of the day is get ourselves wrapped up like a pretzel just because of a dislike or a disdain of a particular former president. I'm not suggesting that she's doing that, but there's a reason to have a measured uh, process that we don't rush a case like this because the issues are of such great magnitude that we want to decide it in the right way. And so I, I would suggest- Do you think I she's think running we'll the risk of that? Do you think the judge is running well, the risk I, of that, Mike? I, well, I think what will happen is that the Supreme Court will get it or an appeals court will get it, and they'll err on the side of slowing down or changing the trial date to make mm. sure that there's a full and fulsome argument uh, to, to be made from both sides about the issues here, because it's not just affecting the former president. This is something that's going to affect every president from now on. And she, they raised, you know, his team raised that in the order, and she kind of batted it down time and time again. But the reality is um, this, this, what we're talking about here is changing how former presidents are viewed and sitting presidents are viewed for conduct, both in this order and the order that we saw from the Court of Appeals today, dealing with whether or not a president can be civilly liable for certain things and that happened during his campaigning as opposed to while he was sitting in the Oval Office. So these are issues that are going to wind their way to the Supreme Court, and, yeah. I, and, and that's the place to be decided. 
Yeah, a future president is important, of course. That, that is if we have a former president in the future who is in as much legal hot water as Donald Trump, which I suppose remains sure. to be seen. All right, Michael and Kerry, thank you very much. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, coming up, the bombing has restarted. The casualties mounting again as the truce between Israel and Hamas ends without another agreement to extend it. We are live on the ground. That's coming up. There are new strikes in Gaza. Israel restarting its military campaign against Hamas after a week-long truce with the group expired. The IDF is also focusing on targets in southern Gaza, dropping leaflets in the city of Khan Yunus, warning civilians to evacuate even as questions grow over where they can safely go. But hope for a truce and the release of more hostages remain. As sources say, negotiations are ongoing. The IDF says it believes 17 women and children are among more than 130 hostages still in Gaza, including several women in their 20s and 30s kidnapped from the Nova Music Festival. Time is of the essence. The deaths of three Israeli hostages in Gaza were confirmed today by their families. And CNN's Jeremy Diamond is in Starat, Israel, with the latest. Well, Jim, the war between Israel and Hamas is very much back on as that fragile week-long truce collapsed early Friday morning. Since then, we have seen Israeli military operations resuming and expanding into the southern part of the Gaza Strip. Ground operations now taking place in southern Gaza, as well as airstrikes in the key cities of Rafah, as well as Han Yunus. Hamas, for its part, has fired several barrages of rockets on Friday at cities in central and southern Israel. We actually witnessed several of those heavy barrages aiming directly at the city where we are, the city of Sterot. We saw these barrages coming in towards our position, the Iron Dome system intercepting dozens of rockets that were fired in this direction. A very dramatic scene, certainly the heaviest barrage of rockets that we've watched fired from northern Gaza towards this position in weeks now. And that's especially significant when you consider the fact that the Israeli military has said for several weeks now that they are in control of northern Gaza. But clearly, Hamas still has an ability, especially after this week-long truce, to fire rockets from some of the northernmost positions in the Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, the Israeli strikes in southern Gaza resulting in heavy casualties, hundreds killed and wounded, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health in Gaza. Among them, you can see some of the scenes. They include women and children injured and killed uh, as well. But despite the fighting resuming, what is still also ongoing is those negotiations between Israel and Hamas to see whether or not there is the possibility of resuming that operational pause uh, in order to allow for the release of hostages. Uh, Negotiations happening in Doha, Qatar, with intelligence chiefs from Israel, the United States, Egypt uh, and uh, several other countries involved in trying to see if another deal is possible, not only to get the rest of the women and children who are in Gaza held hostage by Hamas out, but also to potentially start looking at a broader deal that would see men uh, as well as Israeli soldiers released as well. The Israeli government knows that that will come at a much higher price. And the Israeli prime minister has made clear he believes that the fighting, that the military pressure on Hamas will help to lower that price, pushing Hamas uh, to the negotiating table for those individuals. Jim. Jeremy, thank you very much for that. Uh, For more on this, I'm joined by a member of Israel's Knesset and a former ambassador to the United Nations, Danny Danone. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Any sense of where the negotiations stand at this hour? Might we see another truce uh, come come into the picture over the next couple of days. Good evening, Jim. 
you know, if it was up to us, we would have continued with the pause and uh, we would be very happy to see more hostages coming back to Israel. In the last week, we saw more than 100 hostages coming back to their families, mainly women and children. Uh, unfortunately, Hamas chose to, to stop this kind of agreement we had with them. They were not willing to send us the names of, of the women and children. And we know that they, they have uh, um, 17 women and children in, in their capacity. So it's unfortunate. We resume the fight. And I believe that uh, while we will use more force, we'll be able to resume the talks maybe in the future. But now we are focused on, on the military activity and uh, we are getting ready to use our weapons, our military, to go after the Hamas leaders. Ambassador, there are some far-right members of the Israeli government, including the finance minister, who have called for Israel to back out of hostage talks altogether, cut contacts with mediators in touch with Hamas. Do you agree with that? So we have a government, and the government decided that we support this kind of agreement. And by the way, we will be willing to extend it without any government vote. So the government wanted to continue. It was Hamas who decided uh, not to continue that. Maybe in the future there will be another opening. We are committed to achieve both goals of the war. The one goal is to eradicate Hamas. The second goal is to bring all the hostages back home. It's hard, Jim. You know, it's two parallel goals, but we are committed to achieve both of them. And as you know, uh, the, the, all the eyes around the world are going to be focused on uh, how Israel conducts uh, this uh, next phase of its offensive. Um, it's estimated that 80 percent of uh, the Palestinian population in Gaza is now in southern Gaza. Today, the IDF dropped uh, leaflets over the city of Khan Yunus. Uh, you're looking at we're looking at some video right here. Um, we, we did hear from a journalist there who said, quote, from day one. Uh, displaced from one place to the other. This is what some of the people are saying to journalists there uh, from the north to the south, uh, from the center. Only God knows where next, and there is no electricity, no water, no food, no good living conditions. And this is what civilians are, are telling uh, journalists uh, at outlets like Reuters. Where do you expect c civilians to flee if they've already been told to move to the south? Uh, how, do, how does a, a Palestinian on the ground in Gaza, in the southern part of Gaza, sort through this? So our goal, Jim, is, is to minimize civilian casualties. Uh, unlike Hamas, they want to achieve exactly the opposite. And we proved it when we maneuvered in the northern part of Gaza. We allowed the population to move south. We created corridors for them to, uh, to arrive to safe zones. It will be the same when we operate in the south. We will actually direct the population to move to the west. We actually sent a map to the people in Gaza showing them where the safe areas are, and we will continue to do that. You know, it's not easy for us to do that, but we are willing to wait. We are willing to allow the population to move out. So we will be able to maneuver and to fight with Hamas while we minimize the casualties. You know, Hamas is threatening the people to stay put and not to move, and we do exactly the opposite. Let me ask you this, Ambassador. I'm sure you know about this. The New York Times reporting that military and intelligence officials in Israel knew of Hamas's attack plan uh, more than a year before it happened. Uh, it appears that this was just a spectacular intelligence failure on the part of the Israeli government and the intelligence community. How far up did this intelligence go and what is your response to all this? So, so Jim, I sit on the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee and we we had a few discussions about this issue. We decided as a nation not to start the inquiry now. 
First, we are committed to be united and to defeat Hamas, and then we go back and, and do the proper inquiry. Then we'll do that. We have to do that. So we knew about the intention of Hamas to invade Israel, but we were not aware when it will happen, in what capacity. You know, we have so many threats in Israel. Every day we have threats coming from the north, from Iran, from Hamas. So we knew about the intentions, but nobody knew about the actual date and the, and the operation that Hamas planned. But there was a lot of specificity uh, in, in this uh, blueprint, as it's been described. Uh, I, I suppose you did not know about it, but I, you have to think, I would, I would think at this point, that there are some very serious questions to be asked, not only of the intelligence community, but also of the prime minister. Isn't that the case? Well, I, I think one, once we will get into the inquiry, we're going to have to ask uh, difficult questions. First, the intelligence uh, authorities in the IDF, also what happened on the day of after the attack started, why it took us so long to get to the border and to push back those animals who raped our uh, daughters and, uh, and killed so many Israelis, civilians. And the third will be the decision makers, for sure. Also government officials about what they knew and, and what they did all those years when Hamas uh, actually was preparing for that. And when you look at the border with Egypt, for example, you know, they bought so much the ammunition, explosives from the border with Egypt. We're going to have to look at all those issues. Right. Just to button this up, Ambassador, do you think more should have been done with this information? Was this a failure? Absolutely. No doubt it was a failure, and we paid a heavy price for that failure. But now we are committed, Jim, to win the war. And we are united, you know. We walk together left and right, opposition, coalition. We stand together as a nation. We paid a heavy price for those mistakes, but now we are committed to win the war, to eradicate Hamas, and to build a new future for the people in Gaza. So it's not only about our future, it's also about the people in Gaza. All right, Ambassador Danny Danone, uh, thank you very much for your time tonight. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. In the uh, meantime, the holiday season's in full swing. So is virus season. Hospitalizations are on the rise with respiratory ailments like the flu and RSV causing the spike. A top doctor on how concerned we should be about the health threat. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. You may have heard it yourself, coughs and sneezes around the office or in school. A lot of people are getting sick right now. Respiratory illnesses are on the rise across the U.S., especially among children. Weekly pediatric hospitalizations due to COVID, flu, and RSV are surging. All this as hospitals in China are overwhelmed with young pneumonia patients. Last week, the World Health Organization asked China for more information. And joining me now to talk about this, a familiar face, Dr. Ashish Jha, a former White House COVID-19 response coordinator and dean at Brown University School of Public Health. Uh, Dr. Jha, it's great to see you again. It's been too long. Uh, in a way, though, I feel... It's a good thing that I haven't talked to you in a long time, but let's let's start with these respiratory illnesses and this rise that we're seeing. How concerned should we be right now? 
Yeah, so good evening, Jim. Uh, it is good to be back. Um, I agree. It's good to have taken a little break from all of this. Yeah. But here we are. Respiratory season yeah. is back. Um, and we are dealing with four different things. We've got RSV, flu, COVID. Uh, we also have this mycoplasma pneumonia that, that comes around uh, every winter, a little worse this year. Um, so my view is we can get through this. Our healthcare system can manage this. Really important for people to get up to date on their vaccines. And if people do, we will get through this winter without too much illness. And so you're not concerned that we're seeing, I mean, all the experts are saying we're not seeing a novel virus. We're not seeing anything that coming out of China, for example, that is going to take the world by storm, such as what we saw with COVID-19. You're not seeing that. No, and, and let me tell you why. I mean, first of all, you know, again, the data from China is not always as reliable as we would like, right? So my view is, yes, the Chinese are saying that this is uh, pretty typical stuff. But we need to verify that. We are looking around. We've got a surveillance system now that looks at what's happening in other places. We've got travelers coming out of China. We've got, we're seeing no evidence that there's anything new or novel happening there from any of our surveillance systems that we have built up over the last few years. So yeah, so based on everything we know right now, I feel pretty confident there's not a new virus happening. And, and you just uh, led me to my next question, which is China has a terrible reputation for not being upfront with the global health community about these issues. And Chinese officials have been criticized for dating back to the early days of COVID-19. Has China, in your view, has China gotten any better at sharing this information or is it still a problem? Uh, look, they are better. Uh, I know there are ongoing conversations between our CDC and the China CDC. Uh, that scientific sharing is happening. Um, I always think countries uh, should be more open, more transparent. Uh, I would like to see China share more of its data than it has. Uh, but we have my view when I was at the White House and my view now is uh, it's fine to listen to what the Chinese government has to say, but we should also have a verification system that goes beyond what the Chinese government is reporting and have our own surveillance system uh, that allows us to track what's happening. All right. Very good, Dr. Shisha. Uh, sound advice. Uh, thanks, as always. And I, don't, please take no offense. I don't want to see you on a daily basis. It means nothing <laughs> personally, I swear. Uh, but Dr. Shah, great I don't to see you again. Personally. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. In the meantime, she blazed a trail through history as the first woman on the Supreme Court. Next, we remember former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who died at the age of 83. Tonight, we remember a trailblazer, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court, died today at the age of 93. O'Connor paved a path for generations of women, including the five who followed her, on to the Supreme Court. In my lifetime, I have seen unbelievable changes in the opportunities for women in positions of power and authority that women are well represented, that it is not an all-male governance as it once was. During her nearly quarter century on the bench, Justice O'Connor was a key swing vote. She stepped down in 2006 to care for her husband, who was suffering from Alzheimer's. Five years ago, O'Connor shared her own diagnosis with dementia. And joining me now is Marcy Hamilton. She was a clerk for Justice O'Connor. Uh, Marcy, great to talk to you. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. In, in 1971, I guess, uh, Justice O'Connor, then Sandra Day O'Connor, asked the president to name a woman at the Supreme Court. And 10 years later, uh, she was that woman, uh, thanks to former President Ronald Reagan. What does that tell us about the kind of person she was and the legacy that she leaves behind? 
She was an extraordinarily strong woman who saw the future right in front of her. Uh, she really did believe that she belonged in places of power and managed to make it through Stanford Law School to be a state lawmaker, to be a state judge, and then um, not terribly surprising to her, I think, to be a female justice of the Supreme Court. And you describe Justice O'Connor as the perfect person to be the first female justice. What, what did you mean by that? She had both the gravitas and the warmth to be the person who received hundreds of letters a day asking her to speak at schools and universities and events. Uh, she spent so much time being both an ambassador from the Supreme Court to the country and being a justice. It was really remarkable to watch. And she just was extraordinarily well-rounded um, and just capable in positions of power and at the same time talking to a group of little kids. And, and which decisions was she the most passionate about? I mean, there, there, um, there's been a lot of talk about how she was a key vote on the matter of Roe versus Wade. Uh, what can you tell us about that? So she was the reason that Roe v. Wade was not overturned until relatively recently. Yeah. Uh, during the time that I was clerking, 1989 to 90, there were many challenges that had been brought to the court and the hope on the right of side of the court was that she would be the fifth vote. She was such a strong individual who had her own mind. She was never looking around trying to figure out what to think because of what other people thought. And she just held firm. She truly believed in the right of women to reproductive freedom she truly believed in the power of women to be able to serve publicly. And hmm. so, I, you know, I think she was very proud of that. All right, well, Marcy Hamilton, thank you so much for helping us remember. Uh, Justice O'Connor, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you. And actress Felicity Huffman speaking about the college admission scandal that briefly put her in prison, why she felt she, quote, had to break the law. Desperate Housewives star Felicity Huffman is speaking for the first time about the college admission scandal that sent her to prison. She was one of 33 wealthy parents arrested as part of a conspiracy to get their kids into college. She pleaded guilty to paying $15,000 to inflate her daughter's SAT scores. Here's what she told CNN affiliate KABC. I had to give my daughter a chance at a future. Um, and... So it was sort of like my daughter's future, which meant I had to break the law. I kept thinking, turn around, just turn around. And to my uh, undying shame, I didn't. Back in 2019, Huffman was sentenced to 14 days in prison, a year of probation and 250 hours of community service. She was also fined $30,000. Uh, do the work yourself. Study hard, you might get ahead. Uh, I'm Jim Acosta. I'll see you uh, later on this weekend. Thanks for joining us. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillip starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.